0: Ladies and gentlemen, I went to the river, to the mystic river, and I saw the mystic one, and I looked upon the mystic one, and I saw many heads, and in the many heads, I saw the most electrifying podcast in sports entertainment, and the other head was the most listened to podcast in sports entertainment, and yay, I saw they were the same. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to FFC, I am your host, Damien Ellinghouse, accompanied, as always, by loyal sycophant and lover of all things spooky and dark, Ryan Doyle. Hail.
1: Oh, yes.
0: Yes.
1: As above, so below.
0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome. Um, how are you, sir? I'm doing A-O-K. The world remains on fire. Isn't it great like, how we saw
1: each other two days ago? And we did. And we're still recording remotely.
0: Yes. Well, <laughs> we have limits because we are responsible people, folk. That's right. For the first time in six months, us casuals were able to gaze upon one another and talk about wrestling it was good stuff it was good it was it was bordering on great stuff you know what else is good stuff uh so uh yeah now a a thing happened today you uh you missed my setup there what was your setup i said you know what else is good stuff right Uh, okay what else is good stuff
1: i think you know talking about smart food cat and crunch berries popcorn baby
0: Oh, yes, that's a real thing for everybody that didn't know. Captain Crunch berry popcorn is real. It is beautiful. It is voluptuous. It is lovely. Uh, and it will give you diabetes. They don't say that on the packaging, <laughs> but you will get diabetes. Now, something else very nice happened today. Now, the people at home won't be able to see, but Ryan will. What does that say, oh. Ryan? Oh. You, s- you see, what happened today, somehow, but two months ago, we had just crossed the great threshold of 500 plays. A beautiful, beautiful thing. A great moment uh, for, for mankind, for us, for the world. And here we stand today, ladies and gentlemen, and you beautiful people have put us oh. at a thousand plays. God now damn. I cannot properly express how I feel about that. I feel grateful. I feel angry. I feel horny. I feel grateful again. <laughs> um it's just very cool that uh, all of you or some of you or one of you continue to Tune in and listen to our nonsense, and I am forever grateful. And if you're out there listening, this is in no small part, I would attribute 100% of this to our two beautiful guests, Bryce Donovan and Rex Lawless, who have catapulted us and allowed us to grab the brass ring. We have grabbed it. It is here. And now, like all people that grab the brass ring, we are going to get buried.
1: Yeah, you know, me and uh, me and Damien almost... Wait, was that a Captain Crunch uh, pun?
0: Move on. All
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, me and Damien always joke around how, like, you know, only two of our friends are listening to this podcast. But, you know, whether... Uh, whether it is one or whether it is a thousand, we appreciate every single one of you, especially
0: to our fans in Oakland. Every play, every stream. Every breath you take, every move you make, we'll be watching. Um, And so we join you here today, and we are going to talk about some things that are going to make everybody squirm and be uncomfortable. And you're going to say to yourself, boy, it feels like they should have just saved this for Halloween because this feels like a weird time to do this. But there will be continuity, okay? But first... Every day is um, fucking Halloween in 2020. Every day is Halloween. Every day is horrifying and worse than the last. And if you look at it, uh, every day we're going to die. So it feels appropriate. So, but yes, we, we got together. We watched SummerSlam, but it was a big weekend for wrestling. Uh, we had NXT TakeOver 30. 30 TakeOvers. Now that is 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 something pretty remarkable. I got to think if you were first, you know, watching NXT, back when it debuted in what was it 2015 16 yeah man it's been that long already 2015 I mean it, it's incredible 5 years later we 30 5 years 30 takeovers um there was some cool stuff that happened there was some stuff that I am not particularly happy about but takeover was on yeah let's give a uh, quick shout outs to Pat McAfee man Pat McAfee put on a a clinic. That's how you do
1: a modern wrestling keyfei bending story.
0: They did it fucking right. A hundred percent. And Pat McAfee even went out and he he threw a little bit of shade. He, a little bit of a little bit of shade was thrown at the SNL guys um for WrestleMania and their thing against Braun, which not entirely their fault. You know, uh SNL really didn't promote WrestleMania at all. It was yeah. kind of all WWE. And it was like Two kind of weird people to pick like like Michael Shea and, and Colin Just. That's- yeah, Michael
1: Shea is like the most laid back guy on SNL and then Colin Just is just like a dummy but he's married to um, what's her name?
0: Scarlett Johansson.
1: Scarlett Johansson. So I mean I guess he's not that much of a dummy, is he?
0: Yeah. Or he's just pretty to look at, you know. Um we all know Scarjo's the brains of that relationship. Uh but this this, unlike that, was a bona fide match. And uh yeah, you know, you gotta you gotta hand it to him. He really put on a very impressive performance. It's not surprising. He's an athlete, and we we expect kickers and punters and football to like not be that athletic. But listen, it takes a lot of conditioning. So I'm not surprised. But and you know, you gotta give it a, two guys that I really think deserve some shout-outs from WWE's. Weekend of events definitely has got to go to Adam Cole and Seth Rollins, both of whom worked with people in their first ever matches and both of whom really helped that other person excel. And it's no surprise. Adam Cole's been doing this for years now, even before he joined up with WWE, working in Ring of Honor, working in New Japan. Working in PWG. I mean, he's always been good, but he really elevated himself ever since joining NXT. And Seth Rollins has always been one of the best workers on the roster. We were just talking about it a couple episodes ago. So, uh, but, you know, so credit to them for really putting, helping put on some really good entertaining matches and really helping to lift up two people that uh, you got to hope you're going to see a lot of in the future. Dominic Mysterio specifically, uh, you know, was, was he sloppy at times? Sure. He's a little green, but I mean, uh, he looked comfortable and he looked at home. So, and Seth was just putting on a masterclass of heel work throughout that whole thing. Oh, so that was great. <clears throat> Dude, the
1: fucking, uh, the shout out. If he misses, uh, Eddie, man, Oof.
0: you sure it's not uncle Eddie's huh? Oh, uh, but but to 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 not get ahead of ourselves, right? So we had Takeover, we had Dynamite on Saturday for the first time in their history, and then we had SummerSlam on Sunday. We also had the conclusion of the New Japan Cup USA, uh on what was once Lions Break Collision and is now NJPW strong. Um so we'll just we'll get right into it, right? Uh Not too much to talk about with New Japan. We're building up to Summer Struggle. We're building up to the start of the King of Pro Wrestling title tournament. Um, And it's promising to be interesting. So how they were doing it, I mentioned this before, that uh, each match is going to have its own stipulation. And so, for example, for Okada and uh, Yujiro Takahashi, Yujiro wanted a lumberjack leather belt match. So you would have had Chaos and Bullet Club surrounding the ring with leather straps, which I actually think would have been pretty fucking cool. The Americans overwhelmingly voted for that, but the Japanese were very much into Okada's idea, which was a three-on-one handicap match between Jado, Gato, and Takahashi versus Okada. That's what won out. That's what's going to happen.
1: You know, I uh, I never really like thought of it. Japanese matches don't really have a lot of
0: stipulations do they no like, i think about it all the time because honestly like only
1: a few years ago they had their first ladder match with michael elgin and uh kenny right
0: yeah and um speaking of kenny one of the first triple threats that i've seen new japan do in a while was when kenny was uh in his reign one of the two title defenses i think he had was against cody in the middle of the bullet club split and kota ibushi so, yeah, they really don't do a lot of stipulations that often. Um,
1: they don't really need to. I mean, it almost just goes to show how much of an Americanized thing stipulation matches are. I'm just surprised yeah. with, with the company that they've had over the years, you know, especially like Stan Hansen or any of the funks who, like, you know, originated. I mean, of course, they have Japanese, Japanese death matches with, you know, but you know just like in the regular setting of like all Japan yeah. or New Japan they just they're straight to the business there
0: well and it really it really showed like when Moxley had his Texas death match against Lance Archer and Lance what would prove to be I think Lance Archer's last match in AEW um when Moxley got back the US title i was i remember watching and being like boy yeah this this almost feels out of place doesn't it like you really you really don't and it's funny considering how often Japanese how often like new japan and japanese wrestlers utilize weapons and i feel like it has a lot to do with the fact that like the refereeing is very different so like in the states you have to put that emphasis on like if the ref sees you hit someone with a chair you're going to get you're going to get disqualified instantly so it's used i think a lot more as like a gimmick whereas in in new japan um it's more like admonishment and it really depends on the match and the person, you know, like evil routinely does his little spot with putting a chair on your head and then using another chair to hit it like a, like a baseball, uh, Suzuki loves chair. So like, they're a lot looser with the rules in that regard. Sure. Um, so maybe that's why, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's also, we're also talking about one particular promotion. Uh, DDT, for example, uses, I do this every time. No, DP. Right. No. I did it again. <laughs> every time, every time. DDT they do gimmick matches all the time, but that's kind of part of their comedy. Okay. It's like they're constantly doing wacky gimmick matches. Uh but like I don't watch Noah or All Japan enough to know whether they do more of this stuff. I just like New Japan doesn't really do a lot of it. Um but before we continue, uh I'm realizing I'm talking about getting ahead of myself and in-
1: a little parched there, but a
0: little, a little thirsty and a little parched. Uh, so why don't we take a quick break to talk about what our beverages are for today? Would you like me to start? I would like you to start. I am all discombobulated today.
1: <laughs> well, it is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever it is. Who cares? Time it doesn't matter yep. anymore. Anyway, so I have uh, a nice ghost selection again. Quickly becoming one of my favorite spots. Uh, right now, I got on deck Ambition is a Dream, the Double Cream Ale. It is a 8% ABV bad boy. And it's nitro brewed, so you know it's going to be goddamn delicious. And it's brewed with banana, peanut butter, and a little bit of lactose, baby.
0: It's very tasty. And I, I have a selection from a local brewery, Fifth Hammer. Fifth Hammer, located in sunny Long Island City. This is the Relative Clarity Pineapple Habanero West Coast IPA. It's a 7.2% boy with pineapple and habanero, and I have had this before, and it is a spicy. So, let us crack. And sip. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's good. It, it kicks you. This one really kicks you right in the throat. It is Sometimes you have spicy beers and it's really like not. It really hangs in the back of the throat. Well, it's like either unbearably spicy to the point where it's like you're just drinking hot sauce or it's it's like very mild. This is it's got that really nice kick that Habaneros gives you. It just punches you in the back of the throat, Um, gives you a little bit of a tummy ache. But then you keep on pressing in any event that I remain parched. I also have a little juice bomb by Sloop. Oh, can't go wrong there.
1: Well, I just wanted to uh, mention because of spicy beers. Um, friends of the program, Diana Yoga last year came out with their own beer at the Brewers Collective uh, out in Bayshore, Long Island. And honestly it was like the perfect representation of like a quote unquote spicy beer. Uh, it had habanero and a couple other spices in it and it was like almost like a paleo. Hmm. And it was quite delicious. I do hope if you guys are listening, please make another run of it again. Very
0: interesting. Um yeah, my favorite spicy beer uh, that I've had is probably Boon's Brew by Barrier, which is a great like Thai chili style ale. It's one of my fiance's favorites. Uh okay, so spicy beer. Now we return to spicy piroresu. So so yeah, New Japan's really just gearing up for summer struggle. We got the king of pro wrestling tournament and today is the 25th so I actually do believe that we will probably be seeing that happening tomorrow I believe is it a baseball stadium show that is I, I don't know if all of these shows are going to be at the baseball stadium but yes it is no so it's going to be Kirk and Hall but the main one where like Naito goes against evil that'll be at the that'll be at the um, baseball stadium
1: and then we got the G1, right?
0: The G1's coming up, baby. So, yeah, so actually, you know what? It might be happening tonight or technically right now. So you're gonna have Okada versus Takahashi in a handicap match. You're gonna have Sho and Sonata. So that's very exciting. And that's I think gonna be a submission match. So you're gonna see the uh cross arm breaker against the cold skull. You're gonna have Bushi versus the Master Thief, Toriano, uh, which that's gonna be A two count contest, Um, and I think that's going to be really great. So, so it's only one two instead of one two three. That'll probably be great comedy. Uh, Satoshi Kojima versus El Desperado, Um, an old school legend, former IWGP Heavyweight Champion, I think at least four times against Despi. Um, Neither of them get to use their finishers, and then you got some tag matches. So that's going to be starting. I'm looking forward to that. That all, of course, builds up to um, Taji Ishimori versus Hiromu Takahashi for the uh, IWGP Junior heavyweight title. You'll have um, the main event, Naito versus Evil for the double championships. Uh, And what I think is going to be probably the match I'm most excited for, aside from maybe the juniors match, uh, Suzuki versus Shingo. That shit is going to flap. Uh, so I'm excited about that. But the big news is the winner of the NW, uh, the NJPW Cup USA for the first time ever. Ladies and gentlemen, too sweet. Kenta. Uh, oh, that's where he was. huh? Kenta. Kenta came back in Florida all this time. Yes. <laughs> so Kenta is there. Um, and he won the cup. He was able to go over on David Finlay. Uh, he also beat, he he had a, a solid three matches. Um started off against Carl Fredericks, who is going to be one of the biggest Gaijin stars for New Japan for a long time, I hope. Uh then went over on Jeff Cobb after a little bit of fuckery uh in a very fun match. Um, and then beat David Finlay for the title. But then he got attacked by Jeff Cobb because how this is gonna work is by winning the cup, he now has a briefcase, much like the G1 winner, where he gets a Title shot at the at John Moxley's IWGP US championship at some point. But just like with the G1, he will have to defend that contract. And so it looks like you're going to see Jeff Cobb and him uh, take each other on. Probably in the States, but we'll see what happens. Um, Whichever one of them uh, ends up facing Moxley will be good. Uh, Jeff Cobb, I believe, was Moxley's first uh, G1 opponent where you really started to see who Moxley was gonna be in New Japan. Um, and Kenta, I don't actually know if Kenta and Dean Ambrose ever crossed paths because I think Kenta stayed in NXT and then like maybe was at 205 Live. So I don't really think he ever crossed paths with Ambrose. If, no, I
1: don't think so. Actually.
0: Um That's but, actually, I
1: forgot about it. It's so funny <laughs> they've been they've been so like good at succeeding in their next chapter that I completely forgot about they were both in WWE
0: and and really bully to kenta kenta has done in my opinion a marvelous job ever so i actually liked him when he first came into the g1 is just like no nonsense but uh his heel turn has been was great and he's really been one of the best heels in new japan um yeah, you know it's funny i wouldn't
1: have exactly attached him to bullet club i understood that they probably needed some more manpower at the time but he could be his own thing and i know new japan loves their their stables so
0: it yeah it's really because like you don't stay unaffiliated for long and Bullet Club is like, unless you're going to join suzuki Um It's like a prison gang, you know? It's like, you got to find protection somewhere. And suzuki Goon's a bunch of pieces of shit, but like Bullet Club, especially under Jay White's leadership, returning to like slimy fucking antics. Um, so it was a natural fit, especially because they really needed to grind up him and Shibata, like him turning on Shibata. So uh, whichever one of those two, whoever goes on to face Moxley is going to be great. Um, and I'm looking forward to Summer Struggle. So to to pivot back to the States, right? Uh, I don't need to spend a ton of time talking about TakeOver. Um, Damian Priest is your new North American champion and another great ladder match. Uh, NXT does ladder matches really well, and a North American title really uh, has some great... I mean, I think this is the second ladder match they've had for the title, the first, of course, being the inaugural match where Ricochet really came out uh, when Adam Cole first won. Um, He's really
1: growing on me, actually. I, I do have to
0: say, because if there's one thing WWE needs, is more big men. So
1: mm-hmm. to bring in that next class, um, him. Uh, I think Dio Madden is going to be on the rise soon, probably. Uh, Dominic Dijakovic is doing a good job as well. Mm-hmm. And now that Keith Lee is uh, up on the main roster, which we'll get about to in a little bit. Um, you know, it, he now has some breathing room to, you know, do some more work.
0: Yeah, assuming, of course, that uh, Dajakovic and Dio are not members of Retribution, which it sure looks mm. like they are. Um, I was going
1: to go there, but...
0: <laughs> but, uh, and then, you know, a couple a couple of other fun matches in there. Um, Io retaining over Dakota Kai uh, with Rhea looking like it would probably be her next uh, opponent. Rhea with a little bit of a different look. She was looking a little spooky. Oh, yeah.
1: She looks like some real uh, Dolph Lundgren and then Rocky shit. Mm-hmm. Um it looks good. the uh the pandemic clearly did not get to her whatsoever. In fact, I think she got like even stronger. <laughs>
0: I'm sure, she did. Um the big news from Takeover, of course, being Keith Lee losing his first and it looks like only title defense of the NXT Championship after voluntarily dropping the North American Championship uh to kill it cross. Now I I have problems with this mainly because not because I don't think Killer Cross is someone that should have a title, but more because it really just continues to be that thing where like the only thing WWE seems to care about is creating a moment and they don't give a shit what happens outside of that moment because I don't fully understand why Keith Lee needed to immediately uh, like, go against killer cross. I don't fully understand why he needed to lose his first title defense. I understand he's hopefully, you know, I know Vince likes him a lot and we all hope he's going to be great on the, on the main roster, but I don't know. It just, it doesn't feel right to me.
1: I feel you. Um, Killer cross getting a title opportunity. Not a bad thing. Him winning. Not a bad thing. Keith Lee coming up two days later on Monday night raw. It's a bad thing. And yeah, you know, the moments thing, that's what WWE's MO has been for a while. But like, what are we supposed to forget his entire time in NXT? You know, they. I think like at this point, it's almost like out of spite. They want you to treat NXT separately. And like, you know, we're just just like, it makes Keith Lee look weak in, in, in an instance because it's just like, oh, well, you beat me. See you later. You know what I mean? And it's not like it wasn't, it wasn't like a normal match where he lost, like he got throughout the entire program. It was pretty nefarious, you know, opening the book, getting the flame shot in his face. You know, it looked like he was not only beaten, but he was also, you know, uh, be to a sense, but you know, yeah, that's what I have a problem with. It's just like, nobody's going to forget it, dude. So, I mean, it's one thing if he, you know, this was, uh, he tried to get a rematch with cross and didn't win. And said, like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go try my shit up in WWE, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Especially because like, uh, you know, it's like I said, I just, I don't get it. And you're coming off of Adam Cole's historic, like 400 plus day reign as a heel. And Keith Lee gets to be champion for what? A month maybe two months and then immediately loses it to another heel. I saw somewhere that like the longest face reign was like 134 days. Um, I don't even remember who it was, but like Gargano barely had it.
1: I'll have to look that up because I don't think faces generally retain that long to begin with, you know, like the heel, the heel reign is always usually particularly longer than the face. But, you know, if we're being honest, too, Keith Lee's real comeuppance was against Brock Lesnar at the Royal Rumble mm-hmm. and before that, the Survivor Series. So I think he was on their radar for a little bit. But Triple H wanted to do right by him and decorate him to some sense in NXT. And I don't know if the pandemic pushed plans back a little bit. At least he was able to get that double win. Yeah. But at the same time, it almost looks like to him, you know, it's like almost against his hubris because, you know, I don't need the North American title. See you later. So you know what? He lost the championship and that's
0: it. Well, it again feels like one of those things where like, sure, there's a story we can tell with it, but are we going to tell that story? It's the no, same. They're going to
1: make you like speculate on a podcast with your friends,
0: Exactly. <laughs> and and like now Keith Lee's not an NXT. So I don't, there's no story to be told there unless you're trying to tell a story that like Keith Lee is going to go up to the main roster and be more humble. But like, that's not who he is. Like he is a. Yeah cocky confident face and it's what makes him likable because he's a kind of rare breed of like face that'll beat the ever-loving shit out of you and take no shit and like gloat and brag but also be respectful like it's just not a a character that wwe really likes to have around it's the same thing with like kofi you know kofi dropping the belt to brock in two seconds yeah there's a story that could have been told there and there's a story that they started to tell for two seconds but Uh, you know, ultimately it's not a story that went anywhere and it's not a story that ever actually got told to any degree. So it's, it feels like a moot point, but exactly. eh. And again, the moments thing, a little weak,
1: but people aren't going to forget, man, you know? It's you, you know, the marks and we're talking about Kofi losing against Brock for years to come. So
0: <laughs> It's the thing that you're going to remember most about his reign outside of winning, which sucks. Cause I thought his program with Dolph was pretty solid. Um, his program against Randy was like kind of the start of Randy's really great character work. So I don't know. Mm. It's, but it's, eh, you know, like it is what it is. So it was, it was, a, it was a fun show though. It was, it was good. Um, what has been some of your favorite takeovers over the years? Well, New Orleans was a crazy one. Oh, with the five-way ladder match? Yeah, I think, right, that was the one with the North American match. Yeah, that was great. But that's also Gargano tapping out Ciampa in the unsanctioned match, and that was when Alistair Black won the NXC championship off of Andrade. Um, you had that crazy triple threat between the Undisputed Era authors of Pain and uh, Dunn and Roddy. Which I think is and that's when Roddy joined UE, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, so that was a great one. New York, obviously last year, um was an absolute masterpiece. um again, the Gargano Adam Cole match where Gargano finally gets his win, gets the two two out of three falls match. um that was Volter finally beating pete dunn for the uk championship i mean that was a fucking and the and that tag match right the war raiders versus alistair black and ricochet which everyone you know everyone's like oh what the fuck are we why why are ricochet and alistair black just a tag team but like it worked and it worked because if you just let characters be who they are with some slight variations it works Alistair Black and Ricochet like I know that like the criticism for like Ricochet is like who are you outside of a guy that's very good at wrestling it's kind of like that same Will Ospreay thing but like Alistair Black is a prime example of someone who like he is a very well developed character very strong sense of individuality and it was very clear in tagging with Ricochet that he respected Ricochet. And so Ricochet was someone that he was willing to trust. But he did not change anything else about himself. And it created this very interesting dynamic where Ricochet becomes a little more aggressive. Alistair Black becomes a little bit less of a loner. Um, and obviously, War Raiders are fucking phenomenal. So, yeah, I would say like New Orleans and, and uh, New York are my two favorites because I didn't watch Brooklyn when it happened.
1: Ooh, the first Brooklyn, amazing. Uh, you know, just of where NXT was at the pinnacle of its existence. Um you know, go back and look at that card. And you almost weep because you picture where everybody else is now. And they're doing pretty good for themselves, I'm not gonna lie. But like, you know, I mean, just the Bailey Sasha Banks match, I mean the ladder match between Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn. Uh Another one I want to give a shout out was was um, NXT Philadelphia. And that had uh, Gargano versus Andrade.
0: Oh, yeah, that will. Of course. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 one of the greatest matches in WWE history. Um,
1: Yeah. And man, even the first one that I watched, which was Revolution, and it was the four way between. um, uh, Not Pac, sorry, Neville, uh, Tyler Breeze. Sami Zayn. Uh, God damn it. What's, what's his kayfabe name? Tyson Kidd. There you go. Jesus Christ. Oh, okay. I see Natty post about him all the time on Instagram and calling him TJ and his real name is TJ Wilson. But uh, yeah, no, Tyson Kidd was the fourth one in that. Uh, who really did a good job of going from the main roster and becoming an apathode. He went down to NXT and it became like, you know, the smarmy asshole with the wearing the headphones all the
0: time. Um, and speaking of Tyler Breeze, Breezango did win a match at takeover 30 to become the, uh, number one contenders for the tag match, Oh, sick! Good for that, man. How which about that, they still have not won a tag championship in WWE. So, uh, I'm it was WWE a
1: shame they didn't back. win against the Usos in that one match. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, so takeover, uh, takeover overall was, was solid. I'm disappointed with the title match, but you know, I mean, the takeovers are still at a pretty high quality and NXT starting to develop some, some new characters as the old guard kind starts to rotate out. So, um, and then dynamite was a pretty solid card. We're starting to really see um, the possible horsemen uh, second coming come to fruition. Tully now fully backing FTR. Um, what did he call them? Oh, oh he the called relevance. them for the for the what did he say? For the retribution revelation? revelation? Yeah, I think he said for the revelation.
1: Yeah, because the book of Revelation is where the four horsemen are derived from in the Bible.
0: Uh, yep. So you know what? I was half asleep so, when I watched, so that that's okay. That's fine. There you go, man. Um, and the horseman is going to tie into our, our, our main segment today. So, but another major, two other major things that happened. Um, the elite took on members of the dark order and won. uh, but Kenny really snapping at the end of the match and just like beating the shit out of one of the members of the dark order. And, really sh- like continuing to show this ruthless side of him. And I'm not watching being the elite. Cause it's like a little more than I can follow right now, but I don't really know if there's a particular reason why Kenny is snapping. He just kind of is like he I think
1: outside of BTE. He's been coasting for pretty much the entire iteration of AEW. So, I mean, I'm happy to see him get some, you know, some like lethal and strong uh, ways about him again, because, you know, I think that's an edge that he needs back and, you know, tagging with hangman. I know they teased a little bit about hangman eventually just snapping, but if it's the one who if it ends up being Kenny, I'm, I'm totally down. For it's
0: that. I, I, it's hard to see it not being Kenny right now because Kenny after the match even looked like he was ready to go after the bucks. Um, him beating down Marco stunt for no real particular reason the other day it just it seems that although Kenny is in one of the best tag teams uh in AEW I mean in kayfabe the best tag team in AEW and one that has really had great success they've got really great chemistry and have had some banger matches including one of the greatest tag matches I've ever seen a critically acclaimed one at Revolution against the Bucks um yeah, I'm. I mean, it's good character work. His like roots are starting to show more. So his hair is starting to darker. He's like changing up his kit a little bit. And wherever this story culminates, and I'm sure at all out when they inevitably face FTR is is when we're all kind of assuming something breaks when they lose. Uh, but however they choose to do it uh, is going to be interesting. And of course, the big thing, uh, Brody Lee taking down Cody for the TNT Championship. The Dark Order now holding one of three singles belts in AEW, uh, continuing to grow. Every day, the Dark Order seems to get a little bit bigger with another new person there.
1: Yeah. How do you feel about that?
0: Well, I like it. I think that the Dark Order works well as a very large stable, especially because yeah. like the inner circle has like what six people and the elite has five to sometimes six people. Yeah. Those are the Dark Order has like 20 people. Yeah. Well, it is feeling a little <laughs> bit like what they're doing with Bullet Club where like, you know, L.I.J. has like six people and chaos is like seven people and Bullet Club has like fucking 15. Yeah. Um. Something I forgot to mention, by the way, is Jay White came back uh, on Ah. NJPW Strong and introduced another new member of Bullet Club, which is the Tongan's younger brother, who's twice the size of both of them.
1: Oh, yeah. He said he looks like a fucking bad guy. Oh, he's so
0: big. He's so fucking big.
1: Uh, I'm happy for the Dark Order because this is finally like they're planting the flag moment and they needed one after like having some wishy-washy back and forth in existence in AEW. And... Quite fucking bad ads. I mean, just at the ringing the bell, Brody Lee came out and just started walloping and beating the shit out of Cody uh eventually winning the t n t title uh continuing to beat him down as they got him in the neck brace, they're bringing him back. they do the classic started beating up arn dude, they have Arn tied up behind him, holding him down, they give him like a big boot, mm-hmm. so you get the good. you get the good legend uh sympathy right there. Uh, they went after Brandy. So, it, uh, Cody's going to be pissed when he comes back.
0: Absolutely. And it gives more of this. Like, Cody has been pushing heel for a while. Will he turn? Will he not? There's AW's got a lot of dynamics like that that I'm enjoying. And Brody Lee, I do feel for the most part, has been handled really well. He's been, he does have, he needed a little bit of time to find his footing, but I really feel like the Dark Order as a whole is really starting to ramp up what's going on with them and they feel like a big deal and they feel like they're dangerous and they can really can, they can go after anyone. And Brody Lee feels like someone that can go toe to toe with any other person in AEW uh, credibly. Uh, he's great talker, you know, and after he won the championship talking about how we did this. So he's really, the gimmick is working and it took a little bit of time for everyone to hit their stride, but they are, they're hitting it at the right time. There's a lot of interesting storylines going on and something interesting This is the first singles championship that Brody Lee has held in over five years. The last time he held any singles gold was the intercontinental championship back in 2014. God, it's been that long. It has
1: 21 that belt, dude. I thought he was finally going to get a push and
0: then. And then he did not. (laughs) Um, so dynamite got a lot of good stuff happening. I think they're going to be on Thursday this week. Uh, yeah. Hey,
1: you know, Saturday night is generally a dead night of television and you know, not to do the whole rating shit, but I mean, Dynamite did good. They were the fifth
0: most watched show on a Saturday night. That's yeah, they, easy they pulled. To do. They pulled. You know, the, the point remains that they clearly they will have
1: an audience and they they the audience is sticking around. Yeah, you
0: know? they retain who they have in similar numbers. So their baseline is very high. It's a good thing for wrestling overall. Uh, and then SummerSlam. Right. I'm not going to do a full recap on SummerSlam, but SummerSlam overall was was pretty solid. Um Like I said, getting to watch it with another person next to me was definitely a lot of fun. Um, I think the Thunderdome looks like fucking trash. Ryan disagrees with me.
1: It's just, it's a much needed, like I I was getting claustrophobic in the PC, man. I didn't really care. They could have decided, had a bunch of teddy bears in the fucking front row. They're in a, a big arena. The matches are able to breathe more. They're not confined to a little 24 by 24
0: area. And of course, uh, the most important thing is at the performance center. You couldn't have anyone dressing up in a KKK outfit, so you got that going for you not. now. Of course not. Uh, you got to gotta, gotta squash my takes, David I will squash your takes. Fed bad, Ryan. Fed bad. <laughs> uh, it like it's it's cool, like the pyro and the laser effects. Like I'm not. It doesn't all look bad, but it just is. Like I don't know. For me personally, it's a weird vibe, and like as we're watching, my fiance points out, she's like, wait, there are, like, real screens? It's not green screens? Like, why are there just a bunch of TVs in the fucking stands? That looks weird. Um, Yeah,
1: it's a little disjointed. I'll give it that.
0: uh, I want to point out that throughout the entire night, as me and Ryan are watching, every little glitch that happens, we're like, oh, that's a retribution thing we're doing. (laughs) Uh, And we're like, oh, maybe, like, retribution people start showing up in the crowd, and maybe it'll end the show with that. And they didn't fucking show up. It's one of the fucking four biggest pay-per-views and this angle that you're running and they don't they don't fucking they don't even have a presence they're just so now now you get no anything all the glitches are because you're fucking bad at tv apparently well it's a
1: good thing we have another pay-per-view this sunday yeah thank god we it's got payback. payback
0: yeah we got payback
1: jesus christ so apparently i read online is that they wanted to do two nights of SummerSlam. Yeah. nah but nah. vince decided to space them out one week apart and payback wasn't even scheduled to happen this month or like even in the fall. So we'll just call payback. It's like, well, that's another scheduled pay-per-view. Call payback. Why don't we just call it SummerSlam night two or week two? Like, you know, Coachella. Coachella's two weekends in a row. Powell back!
0: <laughs> it's and, and like, why do we? This was the problem, right? This is our fault because we asked and begged and pleaded for two nights of WrestleMania and then Vince saw that it worked and he's like, two nights of everything. Everything's Summer a two-parter.
1: <laughs> SummerSlam wasn't a seven-hour show for the most part, right? Three and a half
0: hours. No, it's, it's I mean, it's like bigger than well, most. I mean, yeah, back in the day. It's bigger than most, but whatever. So well, You don't even
1: let these matches breathe. I mean, like, you know, Bray won and now he has to fight a week later and against fucking Roman Reigns who also came back.
0: Is that announced to be this that pay-per-view?
1: Yep, triple threat.
0: Oh, Ron with braun Roman versus Bray. honestly, that's probably gonna fucking slap. That's probably going to slap oh, okay it's gonna fucking so burn, man. so to quickly run through it, right, Oscar had two championship matches against both Bailey and Sasha. Bailey was able to retain after Sasha interfered throughout the match and ultimately uh cost Oscar enough concentration to be rolled up. The story told there, of course, is that Sasha loses to Oscar after Bailey really doesn't do a ton of interference, doesn't run that much um. Asuka retained again on Raw, so we're slowly building up to their turn and in an inevitable title match, probably with the roles reversed with Sasha being the face role. Um, Asuka versus Sasha was an incredible match. Um, you sometimes forget how good Sasha Banks is, but uh, her and Asuka really fucking went at it and it was great. Um, and then, you know, you had some other matches that were I don't I don't know it like it was a good pay-per-view but it like only had a couple of like really momentous things uh, you know both of the women's title matches were very good the tag team match between Street Profits and Andrade and Angel Garza was like pretty good I don't really know why we needed said- to let Street Profits win but
1: yeah I know Jesus if they're gonna have Garza and Andrade come out every week on Raw and you know oh you guys aren't good enough to face us blah 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 blah, blah. like dude give them a win yeah. Project like inject some life into these guys, man. Especially Andrade. We were just talking about great NXTs over the years, great takeovers over the years and Oh yeah. Andrade is a top of conversation,
0: at least three of them, and now he's an anthropologist. He's fucking really- he's fucking La Sombra. He's the he's the Guy who created Los Ingobernables. like yeah. Put some respect on his name. Put some fucking respect on that name. But I'm sure they'll get there, whatever. Mandy Rose and Sonya Deville was like a not particularly good match at all, and it's disappointing because I thought the story was pretty good.
1: Considering the circumstances, I'll let it slide. I just don't know what they're going to do with Sonya Deville now.
0: Yeah, go beat Batwoman, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Shout-outs to Will on that theory. You know what, actually, I'm I'm lying. Like, the, the pay-per-view was it was pretty memorable actually. It was good. Dominic Dominic and Seth Rollins we already spoke about a little bit but I really think that this was a great example of somebody willing to come in and really give their all and do really well and somebody in Seth willing to help pull the best out of them. Really great heel work in his talking and in his in-ring psychology having Ray at the side, just playing the concerned dad that, like, is trying to hold up his honor, really great stuff. I'm really surprised that Buddy didn't get more involved. Um, So, overall... we
1: were kind of going back and forth with that, right?
0: Yeah, really. Like, we couldn't tell, like, maybe they're not allowed to touch him, but I thought that match was great. I thought Seth sold like a maniac. I thought Dominic uh, really held his own, and I think that the sky is the limit for uh, El Hijo de Mysterio. And get that boy a mask. Now we'll now we'll get that boy a mask, hopefully, and let him just move on to bigger and better things. I can see Vince be like, he's a cutie. He doesn't need one. <laughs> he is a cutie. <laughs> uh uh, the Drew McIntyre Randy Orton match for the WWE Championship, I thought was very, very good. Um, kind of a weird ending with a backslide. We were talking about this. Like Drew did change it up slightly by doing a backslide, but then actively actually pinning his arms down and like. Drew is big enough that I'm willing to believe that like yeah, yeah but- Randy it doesn't matter how strong he is like he just can't get out of that but it, it was like so, a it was a kind of deflating end to what I thought was, was a really pretty high quality match
1: Drew kind of followed it up last night though a little, a little better I wasn't a big fan of the ending because me and you were just like uh. but Drew was like you want to call yourself the greatest wrestler in the world well I am because I beat you with an actual wrestling move like
0: you know what I mean like a whole like, of you know, <laughs> Yeah, no, was... my terrible scush. <laughs> Um Yeah, and and they're still feuding, probably. So like, yes, I, I, gonna, I, I, st- I'm, I'm. Well, let me correct
1: myself, because uh, Drew took like three punts last night to the head. <laughs> so I don't know if he's gonna be facing Randy this Sunday at payback, but
0: you never know. Yeah, let's let's see, let's see, and then the big thing: the fiend having an actual match against Braun. Match was fine. Fiend matches are really, like, they've kind of worked themselves into a corner with how the Fiend works, but, like, this one works pretty well because like, Braun is so big and so powerful, so like, the and the Fiend wasn't necessarily no-selling like he normally does. He just was, like, still getting up and like, Braun very audibly being like, what the fuck do I have to do? I thought the story that they've been telling with this feud is actually pretty good throughout. I think playing on their history was really good. It's... It was an interesting move to have the fiend win. I don't necessarily think that that was necessary for like because if it's a triple threat anyway. When Roman and of course the big news, Roman Reigns comes back with some new fucking teeth and being a little heelish, like kicking the shit out of Braun who lost. Um, yeah, why didn't they send it on a DQ? They're, they're, we didn't need him. They're going to fight this weekend. We didn't need a, a finish. Yeah, or a I just order. I just feel like Braun, Braun could have Braun also just could have won. Like, I don't. It's interesting, too,
1: though, because Bray made Braun a heel during all this. Right. And I don't know if it's setting up like maybe it's setting itself up something else. But, you know, usually that doesn't really happen.
0: Yeah. And, and that's like what the Fiend does. Um, and it's also interesting because like Roman's also being a little heelish. The dynamics are are interesting, but I'm curious to see how it works. Um, but Roman coming back is a good thing for all of wrestling. Everyone should be happy yes. about that. Everyone should be happy when Roman inevitably wins this Sunday because he's been out of the title contention for a long time. He hasn't been around due to COVID. I'm glad he feels comfortable enough to come back. Um, but I wouldn't mind Bray stealing something, stealing
1: a, a win away. I mean, yeah, it's I don't, just to give it that little because he doesn't need to win something right away. But I mean, like, I, I'm very happy to have him back. I, I'm not going to be a smart anymore. I like the man. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think just to extend the storyline a little further, they could they could do something.
0: Like that. Well, I feel like if you want to extend the storyline further, have Braun win, have Braun win, okay. and like right. pin the Fiend or, or do something, and then have the match be Roman and Braun because that's the feud that put Braun over. It would be some really good. And I appreciate that we're continuing the long term... the long. The long-term storytelling of Roman and Braun just fucking hating one another. Yeah,
1: you pointed it out to me. I was like, wait, why is he attacking Braun? He's like, he fucking
0: hates him. He fucking him. hates him. He fucking <laughs> he like flipped an ambulance with him in it. And like I their <laughs> National Coliseum, by the way. Their feud was phenomenal and and so it's a good thing. And so this leads us into our main segment, which will maybe be a little shorter than others, but a little quick thing I wanted to do. So we see The Fiend, right? And like I said, this is The Fiend returns uh, for this feud, right? Prior to this, it was both Bray Wyatt, The Fiend only coming at the end of the Extreme Rules match. Uh, started back in money in the bank when Braun faced regular old Bray and beat him. But then Braun kind of slowly if not necessarily turning full on, he'll like definitely being deranged and just being so singularly focused. That's a
1: great way of putting it. That
0: that seems to be what The Fiend does, is he just makes you so obsessed with what you can do to defeat him that you lose sense of self. That's what happened with Seth. That's what happened with The Miz. Uh, You could argue that's what happened with Finn, and that's what's happened with Braun. So, you know, Braun wins the first match against Bray, and then at Extreme Rules, spooky antics happen, and Braun gets... uh, drowned and then doesn't show up for a month. (laughs) Uh, But the Fiend emerges from the swamp afterwards and their feud culminates this past weekend when the Fiend again proved to be too much for Braun as he has done throughout his reign. And so in doing this, he has now surpassed his original spooky self in title reigns because he is now a two-time Universal champion. Uh, He was only ever WWE champion before that as uh, cult leader Bray. And he has cemented himself as the spookiest character in the realm. And, you know, it's a little strange these days to see a character like the fiend, considering the modern day product focuses so heavily on being sports entertainment and companies like new Japan and AW, they try to present them a product. That's mostly rooted in realism. Aside from that one time we brought out Matt Hardy and AW and started making him teleport. Cause we had an empty arena and we could do that for him. Uh, <laughs> But it's easy to forget that wrestling has always kind of been dominated by these types of larger than life characters and back in the golden ages of wrestling past larger than afterlife characters as well. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about spooky characters in wrestling and kind of like other how otherworldly shit fix fits into these largely realistic, if not like overblown cartoonish versions of real life. Right. So. Wrestling has always had time for villains of like seemingly comical evilness and deranged psychopaths. And, you know, it's part of the reason why wrestlers like Jake the Snake or Killer Kowalski or the Horseman have been so instrumental to the rise of like the modern day heel. You know, there's not a guy in the locker room anywhere that isn't in some way influenced by someone like Ric Flair or Tully or Jake the Snake or Bruiser Brody or guys like this, you know. Uh, But the start of Arguably, the start of like supernatural gimmicks, at least in America, can be traced back to Kevin Sullivan. Right now, Kevin Sullivan was a low to mid card wrestler who worked WWF, GCW, CWF back in the territory days of the early seventies and throughout the eighties. Uh, and Kevin Sullivan was fine; he was a fine wrestler, but he, he wasn't nothing really to write home about necessarily. Um, that is until 1982, when in cwf in championship wrestling from florida uh he turned into the prince of darkness so kevin sullivan begins to come out with like eyeshadow and spikes and leather while being accompanied to the ring by slave girls it's what he called them and psychopaths covered in corpse paint and snakes and this uh you may or may not know it is tied in very heavily with the rise of um heavy metal in north america 1982 right Bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden have been starting to forge a path. 1982, the year that Metallica drops their first demo. So heavy metal as a, as a rule, you know, bands like Venom and Raven and Motorhead, uh, except it's really starting to break into the national consciousness in America and, and globally, right? Um, and it also plays heavily into America's ridiculously fervent fear of Satanism, uh, so wrestlers that would accompany him, right? You had the Fallen Angel, better known as Nancy Benoit, right? The Maniac, Mark Lewin, Sir Oliver Humperdinck. And then later on, uh, wrestlers such as the aforementioned Jake the Snake and Abdullah the Butcher would flank Kevin Sullivan in what he called the Army of Darkness. And the army would come out to like Deep Purple or Jeff Beck. And they would like do some really, truly shocking things for the time to like massive stars like Blackjack Mulligan, Superstar Billy Graham, Dusty Rhodes and Barry Windham.
1: Yeah, you know, doing that in like the Bible Belt South was really like a good move, and you know, goes to show like the outer reaches of what uh, Southern wrestling would do uh, in terms of like invading the consciousness of its audience. I, I thought I thought that was great when you know I was I was looking back at some old Kevin Kevin Sullivan stuff today, and I was like, wow, you know, th- this character really worked down there.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and. And, and like I said, they did some like really, truly shocking shit. Like they would like hang people. They would do bloodletting rituals in the middle of the ring. They would torture people. Damn. And all while the very charismatic Sullivan would preach about the destruction of his enemies and all things that sounded vaguely occult. And it was done to really great effect. Right. That's who I was imitating at the beginning of the podcast, because he would talk about cosmic cookies and ancient ones and mystics. And it would be a lot of it'd be a lot of gobbledygook. Right. Um, And while Sullivan didn't necessarily do anything outright supernatural, no one had ever so brazenly welcomed the darkness in on national television. And he brought this like real sense of like dread and unease into the squared circle. And I'm talking about rambling kind of word vomit, word salad promos. But this is really something you can see in like the Wyatt family or in a dark order with a special emphasis on the Wyatts, especially because. Bray is, of course, the grandchild of Blackjack Mulligan, and his nephew is Barry and Kendall Windham, all of whom are very involved in storylines with Sullivan. And when you like listen to old school Kevin Sullivan promos, which, of course, we'll have in the details in the episode, um, he sounds a lot like Bray. Uh, and it's even interesting because isn't that always something that people would often say was like it was like a meme about Bray that it's like Bray would come out and. And then he'd like job out to someone and like it would just be more word salad. But it he's really, really yeah, emulating I Kevin Sullivan. Down.
1: Uh yeah, two people come to mind. It's Kevin Sullivan, and I think we touched on this before, uh Waylon Mercy, who was a character in Camp Fear mm-hmm. a movie with Robert De Niro. Yes. he wore he wore like a uh he was like a preacher type. I I actually never saw the movie, I just saw clips, but great movie. Um yeah.
0: Yeah. I watched um, it. But, uh, he, I, I mentioned it a couple episodes ago, I think, but I watched it for the first time and, like, it's Bray to a fucking T.
1: Yeah. So that makes sense. I don't know what Kevin Sullivan's personal beliefs are, but, it, like, the Satanist thing really stuck with him. Well, he, yeah. Just because he's doing it for so long. And uh, I don't know if you were going to touch upon this, but um, more somber thing to touch upon. But when Chris Benoit, you know, murdered like, his family. Did, like, Murdered his family. Uh, Kevin Sullivan was like people believe that Kel- Kevin Sullivan did it in like a satanic act,
0: and like yeah. that's
1: fucking nuts.
0: And the the reason for that, if if people are like, well, why the fuck is is the relationship? Is, like I said, Nancy Benoit was originally married to Kevin Sullivan, ended up getting in a storyline with Chris Benoit, and, and you know the the end up getting married to Chris Benoit, and so. People to this day aren't really sure. uh, And that really plays because of how good Nancy and Kevin Sullivan played those characters. It's like no one knew you really. And it was still, you know, it was the early 80s. We were still keeping Kayfabe alive. So no one really knew. And like you said, he, he would retain us to great effect because even as the territories died and he would, you know, his star faded a little bit. He took his talents to WCW where he would retain some of that same charisma and mysticism as the Taskmaster. And it's in WCW that he would lead the Three Faces of Fear and the Dungeon of Doom into battle against Hulk Hogan and the Hulk of Maniacs shortly before Hogan's turn in the NWO. Um, And so his impact was made permanent, right? And it only amplified from there as we very soon after, of course, got the granddaddy of Spooky himself, the deadlift dead man, the American badass himself, you done and now, the Undertaker, Mark Calloway. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're a casual, whether you're a lifelong fan, right? We probably don't need to tell you who the undertaker is but the important things right of course is that he debuted in the late 80s for wwf and like i said we don't need to go into his whole history but throughout the 80s and early 90s ryan what do you feel made taker such a what made him the phenom
1: well it was just his ability to incorporate like mysticism about him and just doing some things that you know other wrestlers weren't doing at the time I mean point being in kayfabe the man is dead so yes. you cannot kill what is already dead and you know the fact that you beat him down and he would do his sit up and you know in, in earlier days he'd bring out you know the raven with him and stuff
0: like that or the was it a crow It's probably a raven aren't they aren't raven. they the same things I don't think. So.
1: Okay, I mean they are they are assaulted. They they are both associated with the cult, but uh, you know he was like an Edgar Allan Poe poem come to life, and you know it only got more and more ridiculous. You know he he, he can incorporate lightning into his act, and of course we would be mistaken not to mention his cohort in Paul Bear.
0: Yes. Now, like I said, right. Again, Paul Bearer, another one of those kind of larger in life figures that really transcended wrestling in general. Um, but the reason that Undertaker, right, the, the reason that he's kind of the central figure you have to talk about no matter where in the world you're talking about it is Undertaker, right? Kevin Sullivan was a psychopath. He was a maniac. He was a cultist. But Undertaker was like straight up supernatural. Paul Bearer carrying around an urn said to belong to him, Undertaker murdering his whole family and burning down a funeral home as a child, summoning lightning, disappearing, summoning druids. I mean, The Undertaker was a bona fide horror movie villain. And this ties into like, that's what wrestling was in the 80s and 90s, right? And that's, he found himself in this perfect era where that type of cartoonish character work was just starting to be on the phrase, but Undertaker was so dedicated to his craft, and Paul Bearer so good at at booking and and figuring out storylines. They were able to keep that longevity throughout their entire career. Um,
1: yeah, and even like credit to WWE for establishing lore with parts unknown, because you know that was originally Death Valley. But, you know, they did build him eventually from Parts Unknown, and also to other mystical figures such as Papa Shango. Uh, Ultimate Warrior was built from Parts Unknown, Mm -hmm. which he didn't really kind of hinge on. I mean, he also had like some, I want to call it supernatural powers, but he definitely had some like, I don't know, like powers that were bestowed upon him to make him insane. And, you know, just absolutely balls to the wall. But, uh, you know, especially with Papa Shango, because people may know him as the Godfather these days. But, you know, back in the day, like that was a pretty uh, mysterious character himself and, you know, really, you know, shook people Mm -hmm. and uh, trying to think of some other ones, too.
0: Well, Vampiro was around there. Right. Yes. But and so so we're going to we'll touch on some more because right. Taker. Well. Before we get into this next part, right? Just real quick, right? Because we're we're talking about America, but across the globe, the Great Kabuki, a masked monster who hid scarring from the burning hot coals of a match that were wreaked into his face, he was wreaking havoc across both the land of the rising sun and throughout the NWA, and he was the first person arguably to use what was what is known as the Asian Mist, right? A demon spray that seemingly came from the bowels of hell themselves. Uh, The Great Kabuki would be given a son in 1989 in the form of the Great Muda. The once proud Keiji Mudo, legendary star of the 80s and 90s uh, in New Japan Pro Wrestling, had been twisted and torn into a monstrous demon who inherited his father's mist, as well as taking Mudo's moveset and making it more aggressive and more sadistic, with Great Muda having no qualms in cheating, torturing, and maiming to achieve his goals. To such an effect, right, that Muda is one of those characters like the Fiend, where just fighting him seems to be enough to pull something out of you, right? His matches with like Shinya Hashimoto, for example, like Hashimoto always showing a little bit extra violence when he's going against Great Muda. But the thing that I think most people who know anything about Great Muda would would know is in his feud with Jushin Thunder Liger, when the, the torture and the attacks led to a breaking point in the middle of the match where Muda tears off Liger's mask And reveals someone that looks startlingly like him. This horrifying corpse paint dripping black blood off of his face. Turning into the Kaishin Liger. And and Jushin Thunder Liger, this fucking superhero, just beats the shit out. He still ends up losing that match. But... Um you know, that's like what Muda would do to people and Japan has never shied away from the occult themselves, though. The, the yokai don't really seem to be as prevalent these days. And it should be noted that those two gimmicks in particular were partially inspired or entirely created by the legendary Jimmy Hart, uh, former manager in NWA, right? Uh, architect of the Jerry Lawler come up, right? Helping the Lawler, Andy Kaufman feud. So, But with that said, uh, just as an interesting little side note before we return back to America, one of the biggest British wrestlers of all time, a man by the name of Peter Thornley, was best known as Kendo Nagasaki, who was a masked samurai with mystical healing powers. And here's a little interesting fun fact about this very white man using a very Asian name and <laughs> being masquerading as uh, a samurai. You certainly
1: took a left turn there. I thought you were about to pick up like Big Daddy, and I
0: was like, oh, Big Daddy's me. <laughs> uh, he's one of very few people who faced Andre the Giant multiple times and never lost. And in fact, he is the first wow. loss that uh, Andre the Giant ever suffered when he was still going by Jean Ferré. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So that's an um, interesting little thing.
1: One thing that you brought up, which is a very, very good point, and just speaks volumes of Undertaker and people of his ilk, was that you have to go the extra mile to fight these people because they are not of this world. And, you know, that's always been an element treasured with any of these characters throughout the history of wrestling. Um, you know, you're not fighting some guy from Philadelphia. You're fighting a mystic being in a sense and you know you have to give it your all and you know you can't you have to be unscrupulous about it because you know and it's gonna force you to blur the lines of being a face or a heel. Mm-hmm. Um Bray touched upon it very well with his feud with John Cena where you know he wanted John to hit him with a chair in WrestleMania 30 and I think that always bothered Cena that he never did and in the Funhouse match in this WrestleMania, he went for the chair shot and then didn't hit it. it didn't so, matter, yeah, you know, I, I love that point.
0: I agree. Yeah, a hundred percent. You you really have to go the extra mile for people like this because they'll never stop coming for you. They'll never. They'll. It'll never end until you dig deep, right? Exactly. And that leads directly to what I, I think most people would. Would call probably the high point of like mysticism storylines and the occult is, of course, when in the late '90s it was revealed that the Undertaker did not, in fact, murder his whole family, and that there was secretly uh, a sibling hid from him by Paul, bearer of children, Kane. Uh again, Kane, kind of one of those guys that I think transcends wrestling a little less than Undertaker. To be to be sure. But Kane, um, we've spoken about him before, right? He's the twisted, scarred, burnt-up brother, younger brother of Undertaker, fathered by Paul Bearer with their mother in secret. Um, Also, one of few characters in WWE and wrestling as as a whole that has legitimate supernatural powers, summoning fire, seemingly unkillable, Yeah, a real he almost took that
1: aspect of Undertaker that you know you can't kill Undertaker because he's dead. Like you really can't kill fucking Kane. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it culminated in one of the best debuts in WWE wrestling history. Um, I was legitimately terrified as a child, and Mm -hmm. you know, Kane. That whole storyline was just so
0: fucking perfect for the time. And their uh, which WrestleMania was it with their match? The like the, it was, the first big I believe one. it was 17. Was it 17? I thought it was a little earlier in 17. You might be right though. Um, but yeah, so Kane, another just like unkillable character, uh, in wrestling. Con- oh, yeah,
1: I apologize. Wait, was that, it like 14. eight? or
0: oh, 14. Okay, 14. Um, now what ends up happening, right, is Taker and Kane they feud forever, right? Kane cost Taker belts taker costs kane belts it's a whole thing right paul bearer dies doesn't die uh but in feuding with kane right taker creates the ministry of darkness right he starts going after stone cold and like doing some like honestly crazy shit like He wants to bury Stone Cold alive. Uh, He, like, crucifies him. He wants to embalm him alive. He wants to embalm him alive. That's a storyline they did. And the whole time, Taker talking about how, like, he is going to bring plagues down upon WWF. Um, He ends up recruiting Farouk and Bradshaw, who become now known as the Acolytes. And so they kind of go against McMahon. And Vince does this kind of interesting thing where he, like, I think he says Mark Calloway like on screen and he's like Mark Calloway is taking this character too far. It was like a very it's a ballsy gamble in wrestling to like break kayfabe that like for a storyline purpose like that. But that's like what Vince did is he was like Undertaker doesn't actually have powers. Is Mark Calloway aware that Undertaker doesn't actually have powers because he's like just gone insane.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And you know, thinking back on it, it almost kind of worked because it was just like, wait a minute, like, you know, The Undertaker is one thing, but like the Ministry of Darkness Undertaker is another Yeah, it's
0: it's like, it's it's insanely sadistic. It's it's like, it's Kevin Sullivan's uh, Army of Darkness taken to an extreme.
1: There is a great clip of Vince. I, forget, I think it's from a, a random Monday Night Raw. I'll have to find it. Um, so one of the Ministry of Darkness members was uh, Minion. Uh, before that, he was part of the the Hillbillies, I think. And uh, <laughs> so the storyline went that like Minion tried to kidnap uh, Stephanie. So Minion shows up in the back of, of Monday Night Raw and Vince chases at There and was like, come on, you son of a bitch. Get over here. Get over here. I want to find you. So good, dude.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, And throughout this era where like Kane is kind of like face versus like off the rails taker they feud with a bunch of vampires uh, in the brood gangrel who- <laughs> gangrel who originally based his gimmick off of the lost boys and called himself vampire warrior like in his first iteration uh he came back to wwf as gangrel which is based on a clan of vampires in a tabletop rpg called vampire the masquerade uh gangrel not quite as supernatural in antics as Undertaker and Kane, but he would come out to a ring of fire. He would drink a goblet of blood and spit it into the crowd, and he would recruit Christian and Edge. And so they were like legit vampires. That's how they were presented. In fairness, commentary would sometimes just say they were like goth. That was the, <laughs> they were just living the goth <laughs> lifestyle. No, goth, King. Which, is, yeah, like, well, uh, but they're just living, living, uh, like a bunch of goths. Yeah. Ah. Puppies. <laughs> Uh, We got some more
1: t-shirts on Hot Topic.
0: So they would feud with the ministry before eventually joining them. Uh, But they like served as whipping boys throughout the ministry's feud with Vincent Corporation. They would like be subjected to torture. Christian got flogged to prove loyalty or just because Taker was bored. And ultimately, this is, as you may or may not recall, the feud where the higher power is introduced as this mysterious druid figure who's running everything, and it was supposed to maybe be Christopher Daniels, and then it ends up being Vince, so it's this weird, like, Emperor Palpatine thing where, like, Vince orchestrated the entire thing himself for reasons I don't know if we ever fully did, whatever. It, it goes away. Um, it's very interesting that WWE is so, like, especially these dates like, at the end of the attitude are like, they're so kid friendly, they're so, everything's to sell action figures and shit, but, like, they really love occult figures like they really like doing that it's it's Mm -hmm. it's weird it's almost like an old trope at this point um and so like these days right you don't the fiend that's why that's what makes the fiend so interesting is like the fiend is kind of a thing that like you don't do in wrestling these days it's just that era is gone undertaker is the only one that still does it but the fiend Disappears and reappears whenever he wants. He's like legitimately supernatural. He's unkillable. So it's interesting. But um, you know, there are still like characters all throughout that are still occult in nature. Alistair Black, of course, is a real life Levain Satanist, uh covered in occult tattoos. Um
1: Yeah, like that's not boring the lines. The man
0: is truly No, that's a- that's truly what he is. Um uh, very nice man. So,
1: you know, I don't think gangrel and the brood get enough credit because he really like built up Ed and christian and let's not forget he also built up matt and jeff hardy as the
0: new brood yes
1: as the new brood and they almost took it to another different level because they were quote-unquote like punk hardcore gods <laughs> before that and then now they were like okay we listen to typo Negative
0: yeah it's <laughs> gangrel kind of looks like pete steel honestly he kind of looks like a blonde <laughs> he does pete like blonde hair. um i can see that
1: but was fucking badass, man. I wish he got more of a run, but he was pretty much as, as like the ringmaster to his clan.
0: Yeah, basically. And like, and I, I don't remember if it's Christian or Edge. I think it might be Edge that said like, he wasn't really ready for like a singles push yet. And being in the brood kind of really helped him formulate his character. I don't remember if it, it was one of them that said that. So yeah, they were, they were cool. And like, it was an interesting time. And you know, these days, like I said, it's a little few and far between. That's why the fiend's a big deal. But you do still have people like Marty Scurll, the villain, villain enterprises in Ring of Honor and in New Japan. Um, You have, you know, figures like the Dark Order, you know, Brody being, you know, they're not quite, they're not supernatural, but culty, like, weird, occult, the Nightmare family, although they dropped it, that was very clearly going to be some sort of, like, very fucking weird blood ritual shit.
1: So, Damien, in your opinion... When it comes to Crow Sting, or when it comes to, more so in particular, Finn Balor,
0: where would you put them on the spectrum? I can't believe I fucking, uh, this whole time, and I'm forgetting about Finn Balor, no, it's yes. it's fine.
1: I mean, like, Crow Sting is one thing. Does the Demon, there's no kayfabe backstory to that, right?
0: At least no, there, it depends on whether or not you consider the WWE comics kayfabe, because
1: yeah, the lore. <laughs> no, but it wasn't it wasn't mentioned on like NXT or anything
0: like that. Right? Maybe like briefly, but like the lore behind the demon is that like it is the demon king. And mm-hmm. it was like an Irish demon that Finn just like encountered one day and like sling bladed into. I'm serious. He like he like sling blades this demon into submission. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the WWE comics are great, man.
1: I, I really wish they continued them because they they provided like. Kind of like a legitimate backstory to a lot of things that I almost wish that they like touched. On. They had
0: like a whole backstory for like the riot squad when Charlotte brought them in and like uh the, there's a very famous one of AJ Styles during the Samoa Joe feud, where his dad's like, Yeah, um Uncle Uncle Joe or like some guy named Joe came in and like uh you know, played he like watched TV with us and then he left, but AJ's just like he drank out of my coffee mug. And his son's like, yeah, Uncle Joe like like, hung out and like hung out with mom. And he's like, he drank out of my coffee mug, my special coffee mug. That's some bitch. So I would say Crow Sting further on the like, just your gothic. Like he wasn't really spooky. He was just like, he was like a kind of movie tie in for WCW, but. He was
1: almost like a means to an end, right? Yeah,
0: it was. It was just Sting getting beaten and berated by nwo and feeling like he got turned on by uh luger right was his partner at the time yeah and just
1: no, getting turned on by everybody by, the, yeah yeah by being turned on by the fans
0: and just like yeah a means to an end like i'm alone or i'm for myself the demon king finn balor is definitely a little closer like he's like a, a he's like a boogeyman type situation where you don't quite know. Like, you want to think this is just, like, a face paint weird thing, but, like, there's just enough weird shit. And, like, the Demon is harder to take down than Finn. And towards the end of him using that in WWE, the moveset did start getting different, most notably in his last match, I think, as the Demon, powerbombing Bobby Lashley. So, like, Mm -hmm. as time went on, the Demon definitely did become, like, more aggressive and stronger than regular finn balor um but yeah they're still they're like callbacks without needing to commit to an actual you know that's it's much more akin to like a great mood or liger thing where it's just like this is my dark alter ego um
1: yeah and well, liger was kind of presented more so as like an alien right
0: yeah you would say yeah yeah for sure and then like the most The most notable now would have been Broken Matt because, like I said, like he like has kayfabe like teleportation powers and like summons fire and shit. But
1: it's funny because Matt almost portrays like this Victorian ghost within. I mean, he he portrayed a lot of things, but like he almost had like this Victorian element to his uh, character work. Yeah. Which I really appreciated from him. Broken
0: Matt now is Damascus is his alter is one of the different alter egos where it's like a Mesopotamian god. Um,
1: yeah, I think he always kind of alluded to it that, you know, he was always, he didn't call it Damascus at the time, but he was the spiritual being that, uh, invaded the vessel of Matt Hardy. Yeah. And he referred, like he calls people, you know, he called, he would call Jericho like brother Keith and like he, he would go out of his way to use the middle, the real middle names of wrestling characters. Yeah. Because that, that's what you used to do like back in like, you know, ancient times is that you refer to people as like, you know. Oh, brother. What is your middle name? Vaughn. Yeah? Okay. Brother Vaughn. Vaughn. Well, my middle name is Francis.
0: I like yours better. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would say, like, Broken Matt and Ring of Honor was one of the last, like, prior to, like, w- alongside the Wyatt family, like, actual, legitimate, like, this is, you know, the Lake and Reincarnation is shown to actually have powers. And Ryan has a headcanon that, uh, when Bray Wyatt was thrown into the lake of reincarnation that he became imbued with it. And that's why the fiend changes people, which I personally really love as a theory for why characters change after facing Bray. Um, so yeah, you know, it's uh, yeah, they're never going to
1: reference it, but you know, it, it's fun to think about and you know, you put up WD comics and if it was still around, I'm, I, I'm sure that they would touch upon that, but yeah, I love it, you know, and especially, and like, you know, it keeps fucking me up because, you know, everybody says WWE is not smart enough to keep going with this, but characters change when they face Bray Wyatt, and this is not a one-off. This has been going on for a solid year now, so if, yeah. even if you look at it, the that aspect, um, just the ability for Bray Wyatt to project that upon his opponents every match is just a little bit of you know awesomeness it just adds to his lore within wwe
0: yeah for sure and like you and you see characters you see cult leader characters pretty often these days like you have um you have rosemary and tna um you know you have marty skirl so like that's pretty or common even,
1: uh, abaddon abaddon yeah and the, the new Abad- she, she was fucking badass
0: abaddon yeah in in aw so you you see it a lot so um You know, just a just a little interesting look into like the like it's it's one of those things about wrestling where it really kind of is all about presentation. You know, WWE sometimes borders in almost cartoonish levels of things they do. So you're like, what the fuck is happening? Right. But Mm -hmm. there are people like Bray Wyatt, who, for the most part, really know how to draw that line between what can and can't be taken seriously in the scope of this reality. Um, And, like, you know, The Fiend hasn't done anything that you can't chalk up to a regular human, but there's, like, just enough that you're, like, uh, is, like, something wrong here? And Undertaker remains the only character that really does out and out, like, this is shit that should not be able to be done by anyone fucking... So, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, and I... I like the fiend for what he is. And Bray does have a good mind for this. And it's, it's cool. It was cool in doing this to see that there isn't a reason for it with how mm-hmm. prevalent Kevin Sullivan was in his family's careers.
1: Yeah, no, this is a great subject that you brought up and, you know, amongst the culture wars of today, as we touched upon in previous episodes, go check it out, how heavy metal is interwoven into wrestling. Uh, you know, back in the eighties, it was a big deal. Um, One thing that comes to mind is the story of the West Memphis Three, where, you know, it was a pack of three individuals. uh, (laughs) uh, Very famously, Damien Eccles is the name that you might recognize the most from it, who were just, you know, they were teenagers who listened to heavy metal and, you know, they just happened to find themselves on the wrong side of the law. And these men went to prison and on death row. And they were primarily primarily implicated for the fact that they listened to bands such as Juju's Priest and Iron Maiden. And, you know, these days you look upon those bands and you're like, my dad listens to
0: them. Like, what are you talking about?
1: Yeah. But like, you know, you almost had this stigma attached to you if you listened to this particular brand of music back in the day to where the point that, you know, you could go to jail over it.
0: A hundred percent. You saw it all so, over. Yeah. Um no, I'm sorry what were you saying? Well, you, you saw it all over, you know, exactly right. in the like the West Memphis Three is in that 80s and 90s height of, and it it also is like as America became more and more tied into evangelical thought and and mm-hmm. kind of dogma, as people like Ronald Reagan really bring that into every aspect of government, it permeated down to the rest of society. With viewing this, you know, Nancy Reagan uh people like her, Tipper Gore, um just going after metal and punk and, and alternative looking things. Um and so that's why Kevin Sullivan was able to play to such great effect. And it's why like we look at stuff now and we're like, eh, whatever, it's fucking silly. But like, you know, it was fucking edgy for the time. And yeah, it was a big deal at the time. Man. And to not to to not miss one crucial thing, of course, right, to tie it all up. Uh, Lucha Underground did, like, a shit ton of, like, occult mysticism things because it was, like, a TV show. Like, Pentagon was, like, a fucking demon lord and, uh, you know, like, Lucha. Yeah, that was, like, the, almost the whole thing about
1: it, right? Is that they were fighting in, like, this ancient Aztec temple and they had to summon all these gods and
0: yeah. mystic. And, like, yeah, the you know. base, the, the big faction was, like, the Disciples of Death. So, like,
1: I, th- I really wish that took off more than it did.
0: Yeah, you know, it
1: was kind of goofy, but they did have good elements about it. And then even though it turned out that like they weren't paying their wrestlers, (laughs) I think I think within like the Wild West of like indie wrestling four years ago, if you even want to call it that, like they had a niche, they had a place, they could have done something with it. They just got a little little more fun.
0: I mean, I know people like my buddy John Moran, uh, if you're listening. Hi, John. Uh, John routinely talks about like the first season of Lucha Underground. He like loved like Lucha Underground kind of scratched an itch for people that there are people that want to watch wrestling, but they're like, fuck it. No reality. Make everything cartoonish levels of violence and fantasy. And like Lucha Underground scratched that because it was very clearly like a TV show. It's listed as a TV show with like big overarching stories and like like plots that all tie together. So like, yeah, it absolutely had a niche. Um, So as we, as we begin to wrap up here on our spooky, spooky podcast here, uh, Ryan, do you have a legend killer for us today?
1: I do. But as we uh, pull it up here, would you like to talk about first of what you're listening to?
0: Oh, you want to do that first? Ryan is Ryan is playing with what works. All right. Let the record show. Okay, sure, we can we can talk about what I've been listening to. Um, well, I've I've been on a big Deftones kick as of late, just kind of listening to everything. But I've kind of talked about them a lot, so I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna continue to talk about them. Um, I I've I went back a little bit and like listened to some old metalcore albums that I used to love in high school. Like I listened to "Scream Aim Fire" by Bullet for My Valentine, which honestly, still kind of fucking holds up. There are like some songs on there, like Eye of the Storm or like Waking the Demon or Take It Out On Me that I, I still think are, are pretty good songs. Uh, the Curse by Atreyu is is an album that I think still holds up really well. Uh, and I listen to a little bit of Death Heaven because um, I like Death Heaven. Fucking sue me. I like weird, poppy classic rock black metal made by, you know, Bunch of fucking weird American dudes. S- sue me, whatever.
1: That happens, fucking awesome, dude. everybody can go fuck themselves because they have this hipster label attached to them. Um, uh, Sunbather, great fucking album. Roads to Judah, great fucking album. Uh, when I first heard Dreamhouse for the first time, goddamn, that was uplifting, and you know, it's like, wow, it's almost black metal presented in a
0: major. Yeah, key. <laughs> it's, that's literally what it is. It's black metal in a major key. Uh. The two other things that I will give special shout-outs to. um, When I was a a, a tiny tot, I was eight years old, my parents were obsessed with this one album by Alice Cooper uh, that came out in the year 2000 called Brutal Planet. Brutal Planet is... So Alice Cooper needs no introduction, right? Uh, But if he needs an introduction, uh, whatever you think Marilyn Manson is, Alice Cooper did it first. That's the whole joke.
1: He is the godfather of all of that. And if you really want to give him more, more so than that, he's the godfather of the stage show in modern American
0: music. And you know what? It's apropos actually that I bring up Alice Cooper as we wrap up a episode about spooky things because Alice Cooper, there's a guy that in the eighties fucking nineties was like decapitating himself on stage, yeah. like a very, fucking great man. very elaborate, elaborate show on stage. Um, So You know, you know him as as uh, no more Mr. Nice Guy schools out, you know, poison 18. But I want to be elected. (laughs) uh, But what makes him really what makes Brutal Planet so interesting is it happens in 2000. And it is like this very dark industrial album with like. Extremely overt religious tones. It's very like biblical, but it really because Alice Cooper is is very very religious. He like was credited with saving Dave Mustaine's life from drugs. Probably why Dave Mustaine is also such an evangelical. Except whereas Alice Cooper stays out of politics outside of saying that he doesn't think musicians. Yeah, at least
1: Alice didn't go that far with
0: it. Alice Cooper <laughs> says shit like I don't think musicians should talk about who they support for politics, which makes me give some pause. But like, he's not Dave Mustaine being like, "Where's the birth certificate." Where, where's the, where's Come on, the, where's the, where's the, where's your birth certificate man? <laughs> Hello, Brock, meet the new Brock. <laughs> um, but like hey. Brutal Planet was this like very fucking heavy industrial album that Alice Cooper made that like really fucking rips. And I expected it to sound very dated, but it is good. And I recommend everyone listen to it, especially if you like Alice Cooper. And lastly, um, the last album that I'll shout out is, uh. It was recently the 30th anniversary of the debut album of one of the most important death metal bands of all time, Cannibal Corpse, Eaten Back to Life. Uh, The first album by the Florida stalwarts when they still had Chris Barnes as a singer before the beautiful Necklace George Corpse Grinder Fisher joined. Um, That turned 30 years old like last week. Uh, Cannibal Corpse fucking rules. I don't give a shit. Of I love old school death metal. I love me. No further explanations. No either. further explanations. If you like old school death metal, go listen to the 1990 album that kind of really helped put Florida on the map with that type of shit. Um, I love death metal. Okay, okay. That's, I'm done. I'm done. I've listed five albums.
1: Well, you're not going to list Deftones, but I will. So because <laughs> Deftones just dropped their single last week. That they Oms. did, yes. Yes. And uh, we've had many discussions on it. It's fucking awesome. Now, Deptones, after their tragic passing of bassist Chi Chang earlier in the decade, uh, came out with two just absolutely phenomenal albums in Diamond Eyes and Koi no Yokan, Uh, to the point where they almost caught lightning with the bottle twice. Because if you look at it in many aspects, at least Diamond Eyes is not supposed to exist. That is true. Um, they were recording an album called Eros at the time with Chi, uh, right before he had his accident in 2008. And a lot of people say that it's kind of rumored that Diamond Eyes has tracks off of Eros as well as uh no does. But regardless, like for a band in their stature uh, at their point in their career, where you know they they really transcended the new metal label that they got associated with over the years. Hundred I mean, percent by far, they are the most successful. Like, all right, let me put it this way. Amongst current music, they are, you know, way a lot su- more successful than a lot of bands of, of their ilk of
0: Oh, yeah, I would. I mean, if you're talking about, like, de- new metal bands that matter, I can't think of many bands outside of, like, Disturbed, uh, who really, like, only have one out-and-out new metal album before they go to alt-rock. Yeah. Like, it's like Deftone's System of a Down and, and slip like knot. yeah, Slipknot like Lincoln Park. System
1: of Down they haven't they haven't done anything and probably won't do anything so they're kind of yeah. just going to exist in their own bubble. Absolutely, Corn's doing their thing.
0: Corn's great, you know.
1: But what happened was in that 2016 they came out with Gore, and they kind of took their foot off the pedal a little bit, so to speak, and kind of just like let Chino take the reins. And Chino's very big on 80s. uh, new wave music, and they really incorporated a lot of s- that within their uh, album, even though it has a sick track in Phantom Bride with Mr. Jerry Cantrell. But when I heard Ohms the first time last Friday, uh, what it starts off with is just like this incredible, just like pentatonic scale. Riff- mm-hmm. And it's it's Stephen Carpenter, like, coming back into the fray of the band. And, you know, I love my Deftones when, best when Chino is riding and surfing those Stephen Carpenter riffs. And it's interesting because the single is the last song of the album. But um, I think when the album does finally drop on September 25th, as soon as you listen to the entire album, you're going to circle back upon that song that you know is going to tie everything very nicely together. I'm for it let's
0: go yeah um it's got this very interesting like classic rock feel in the same way that later era mastodon does that i thought was very cool and yeah, uh that's a great example. and i read a i read an interview with chino where he was talking about how steven was like kind of checked out on gore and he says it, he's like it, there was like no animosity like he obviously had like a huge part in still writing the album but like he kind of felt like it wasn't his album, and I do feel like you can hear a difference in this. Um, right, and also every, every time Deftones comes up, I will say it. Um, go listen to Diamond Eyes, drop what you're doing, and go listen to Diamond Eyes. It's one of the best albums yeah, of the last decade. That, um, yeah, yeah, that, that that's coming out September 25th. That's gonna be great. I got time for it, everyone should have time for it. Um, and just a couple of like local. Shout outs this Friday. We have a new single dropping by Leave This Place, right? So that is Friend of the Podcast, Ed Abramowski. Sorry if I didn't say your name right. I'm going to hope I did. Please don't yell at me anywhere if I didn't. <laughs> and uh, leader of Sclubby and formerly FX Zero, Steven. Uh, they dropped a single a couple weeks ago. Aggressive is all I can really say. Ed's a great vocalist and Steve's a very talented guitar player. So they're dropping a new single on Friday. Make sure to check that out. Resistors still dropping singles, doing their thing. think they're still promoing for Dead Air. Uh, Modern Static Records, still working with uh, Dow Boys on LP2. Recently on Twitter, uh, got over 700 likes on a status that said every like. I'm going to add a... <clears throat> So hopefully it'll be an album full of those. Um, oh, By the way, they got
1: over a thousand likes on that. <laughs>
0: yep. So, so you, you enjoy that.
1: Also, let's not forget Mootooth dropped a new single a couple weeks ago and Six of Swords and a whole acoustic EP. So go check that out.
0: Yep. Make sure to go check that out. Um, They continue to do great work and, Uh, Nick Lee continues to be one of the most insane guitar players I've ever seen in my fucking life. Um, and we got any other, we got any other local boys doing some stuff right now? I think that's it. Uh, I will give a special shout out to my buddy, John Moran. He's going to be starting a YouTube series soon. Um, and his YouTube series, which I will put a link into the details whenever he drops the first episode. He actually went to Rex's show that Rex had promoed on our um on his episode with us out I'll in we in john. in Weehawk and john uh and his dog went out to see it said he had a great time said Rex was great came very close to meeting Rex, but then it started raining and he had to sleep in his car um and was nice enough to use a little bit of Transient's music for the intro so uh hey, look at that. <laughs> Make sure to link that. And uh, Transient's EP2 is coming along. EP2. Yeah, EP2. Coming along nicely. So my band. I want it, Damien. You'll, I want it now. You'll get it. You'll get it. We're working with the incorrigible Liquid Studios with it. Um, okay, so the Legend Killer is prepared. Ryan has had ample time to load it up. Let's take a look at it. Farouk. Is that your final answer? No. An associate of Farouk. Is it a member of the nation? Yes. Focus on the tattoos. And that mustache.
1: Mm. We referenced him earlier in the podcast.
0: Is it Vampiro? Is it is nope. is it uh is it is it Godfather?
1: Yes, it is. Good job, Damien. We are now looking at a picture of Kama, which was one of godfather's earlier iterations uh aka papa shango aka godfather aka Goodfather, aka mr charles wright uh godfather uh legit golden gloves boxer um kind of you know he when when the godfather gimmick came around he kind of just took off on that and became like you know larger in the life and cemented his legacy in wwe but godfather was one hell of a worker man um also a famous cohort of the bone street crew which was uh the backstage answers to the click and in bone street you had undertaker rikishi uh godfather garuk and bradshaw kind of like you know like the real boys of the backstage and you know they weren't gonna get into that petty pretty click shit
0: wrestler's court
1: Wrestler's Court, of course. You make sure to bring a bottle of Jack Daniels because that's pretty much what the ultimate <laughs> is. So just give Undertaker booze because you're in trouble. You're in
0: trouble. Uh let the record reflect that I got that right in three guesses. Oh yeah. And, my man. and all it my took man. was for me to guess the completely wrong person uh the first time. They look kind of alike though, right? Me,
1: they but, they don't... Man, you were close. You were close. Yeah. Somebody give me a I Feel face.
0: like it was the facial hair. Um yeah, it was. I don't know. Whatever it was. Fucking face blind. Okay, cool. That's that's better than I usually do. I will take that as a win. There you go. Um, all right. Yeah. So I think that is our episode here. Um, we are continuing strong doing our absolute best. Um, consistency, baby. Consistency. It is the key. Uh, you got All Out coming up on September 5th so if you're into AEW that promises to have some solid matches on it I really hope we get to see the Kenny Heel turn there um, Mox MJF is probably going to be incredible been a great lead up and Jericho Orange Cassidy 3 which honestly I'm not really looking forward to because 2 was pretty Shut f- up. 1 was really good and 2 was pretty fucking bad
1: shh Shut up! That was fucking great. I gotta admit. Shut up. Um, See, Chris, I know it was great that you booked yourself in a debate against a guy who doesn't talk. But
0: shut up! I see what you're doing. I know what this is. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care about you. It it, the whole (laughs) thing was great. Uh, So that's September 5th. You got uh, payback, I guess, next Sunday, whenever. Dynamite Thursday and summer struggle happening today and tomorrow leading up Hell yeah. leading up to the good stuff um, yeah that's what we got and uh, we hope that everyone out there stays safe and humble and I hope that everyone gathers their family around and enjoys a nice goblet of blood and just fucking murders your goddamn neighbors go out there and ritual sacrifice your heart out and blast crystal mountain as you're doing blast crystal mountain okay uh so for Ryan for myself this has been the most electrifying must listen to podcast in sports entertainment this has been if if see